The fight for justice is ingrained in the DNA of our country. But in this fight, we grapple with a complicated, violent, and deep story, trying to live up to its full definition. The COVID-19 pandemic has shown us how much more work there is to do, exposing deep tears in our society where acts of injustice can reign supreme. We have seen citizens of all demographics and generations take to the streets, their phones, their mailboxes, ballot boxes, and Zoom to not only demand that injustices cease, but to lift up the voices of those historically marginalized. People understand justice as you know, the retributive side of it. When you do something wrong, you need to be punished. Right. Wrongdoers need to, that needs to be made right. Um, but then there's this restorative side. Uh, and that is the kind of the uplifting of the marginalized and the oppressed. And really justice is both of those things. I'm Kenneth Brown Jr. And this is Pivot, a podcast about navigating transitions, negotiating change, and reimagining our world. Today, our guest is Rob Shields, executive director of the ReCity Network in Durham. As the Bull City's hub for social impact, they use the power of proximity to connect nonprofits, faith organizations, and businesses as they find solutions to Durham's biggest challenges. Our conversation explores themes of proximity and justice during a global pandemic and the ways a person's privileges and connections can be leveraged to help others be successful. City is all about justice. Um, I think that's uh, really integral to our mission is building more just communities. And the way we practically go about that is uh, we have formed a network of nonprofits, businesses, and faith communities that all converge and get proximate in a single location uh, of our co-working space, um, which I think is makes for an interesting conversation on the pivots podcast because there's definitely been a lot of pivoting when you're in the business of convening people, right? And, mm-hmm. and putting a lot of intentionality in our first five years in really the value of coming together as a community to solve some of the most complex fo- problems facing uh, our most marginalized community members. So uh, it definitely has been a, a really interesting journey, but uh, we're, uh, I think a mission of building more just communities is no less relevant than it was before COVID. I would argue it's even more relevant than ever before. Just maybe how we go about doing that needs to, needs to be a little different. Right. Right. And I'll, and I'll argue the same point exactly. And I love that you hit on that because I definitely want to get into that value of justice that you all um, live into. But I was wondering personally, how do you define a pivot? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I've, I've never been asked to actually define it, although I've used the word a lot. Um, <laughs> so it was, it's a good exercise to actually, hey, what, what do you mean by that? Um, I think of, you know, I played, I played baseball, played, played a lot of sports growing up, but baseball was my, my favorite sport. Um, and I was a pitcher. So if, if people know anything about baseball, you know that in, when you're a pitcher, you don't really have to be a really good hitter. Right. Uh, you can kind of work the, just the, the defensive side of the ball don't have to be really very good. They'll give you a lot of grace if you're terrible at, at hitting, uh, which is definitely me. But so I don't know a ton about hitting, but what I was taught and I tried to, to aspire to as I to get better there was, you know, the importance of kind of keeping one foot on the ground 
and kind of turn, twisting your foot into the dirt as you, as you swung. And I think that, you know, coaches would always tell you, that's how you make sure you're using your legs, getting your power um, to, to have the right form. And I think honestly, as if I define a pivot kind of in working terms, you know, I'm not sure what it says in the dictionary, but um, I think it really is around making a change, but oftentimes that change is also still being anchored in something that was the same as before. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you, when you make that pivot with your foot in the ground, you're turning your whole body, but your position of your toe is, is digging in even, even perhaps more deeply into the same ground that it always was. It's just, and you kind of need to have that anchoring position that makes it possible to make the, the change of the rest of the body. Um, and I think that's really, uh, it's a really helpful definition for times like this, because right. I, I think that making a pivot, um, I ran across an article at the beginning of the pandemic, really talking about how as, as leaders, anyone that's in a position of leadership really needs to pivot in a way where you actually double down on your who hmm. and your why, you know, those first couple slides of any pitch deck that you have, whether you're a startup or whether you're a well-established business model, um, your who and your why shouldn't change that. That's your anchor, mm. but really everything else, the what and the how you go about doing your business in a pan in a pandemic is going to have to fundamentally look different. Uh, you might as well throw out the rest of the slides of your deck and, and rewrite them for a new, a new chapter and a new season. Um, and, and plan for that being uh, happening over the long haul. And so I, I think that's kind of what a pivot means in our present reality is really digging deeper into your who and your why, but really thinking uh, and throwing out the playbook and rewriting it for your, your what and your how. Right. That's good. Um, and I, a nice segue to another question that I've had is what has that looked like for ReCity? how you all kind of leaned into your who and why, um, even though your what and how may have had to change. Yeah, yeah, I think I mean, we, we alluded to it earlier, right? I, I think COVID, you know, the organizations we serve are serving some of the most marginalized and vulnerable populations in our communities. And so I think that for us, we have doubled down on we're, we're, we're about coming alongside, you know, community leaders, people who have centered justice as a part of their mission, who are serving vulnerable populations, marginalized groups. And we want to be, we need to be able to pivot what we do for them. But really, I think it's, it, it kind of revolves around this issue of, of getting proximate. So one of the biggest changes we've had to make as a network that's housed within a co-working space is what do you do to create proximity right. when it really isn't safe to get proximate the old-fashioned way right. of hosting events with 50 and 100 plus people, um, even just sharing the same coffee bar, you know, or the same office space when there's this concern that that could be da a dangerous thing to do. But we know that these organizations are being asked to do more with less resources, serve more people who are even you know, worse off than they were before the pandemic, but do it with less money and, right. and time and people. Um, and I think for us, we've just had to realize that proximity 
we didn't need to abandon the concept of getting proximate. We just needed to know that uh, or really lean into this idea that you can create proximity in a number of different ways. Right. And so we, we took the opportunity to lean into really deepening our digital infrastructure of how we come alongside organizations that was always a part of what we've done, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we always used email, we communicated to our network, you know, we had software, et cetera, et cetera. But we were, all, most of our energy was spent in maintaining a physical space when it was being kind of at its, in its heyday. And I think using this time where our space is being used less, we've used that margin to really redirect our proximity uh, efforts to really be digital conveners and to just kind of uh, optimize the digital infrastructure of what we do to complement the physical infrastructure, you know, knowing that we're not really sure when the physical will return, you know, Lord right. willing, it will come back. Cause yeah. I think that it's still a vital piece. We're not, we're not shedding our building and we don't think we just need to go and become just a digital network only because we really think there is power in getting face to face. And I think that we're just right now, we're not able to do that, but I do still think there's going to be this, this, there is this desire and value in coming together. Uh, and so I think we're kind of laying the, the digital uh, tracks, if you, so to speak, so that once the physical gets reanimated, we'll, we'll hopefully be even stronger than we were before the pandemic. getting proximate and walking alongside um, your community what have you what have what has the community kind of been saying what has there been new challenges that um, have emerged for Durham um, how has the community come together to rally around these challenges what have you been seeing yeah it's <laughs> it's almost like describe a hurricane when you're in a hurricane you know like <laughs> Uh, in many ways, you know, we, yeah, we're, we're a year in and I, and there's plenty of people who are already kind of reflecting on lessons learned, right. you know, I think hindsight's going to be 2020 on this. I, I don't have the magic, uh, crystal ball to kind of predict all the future of how we work and how things will be changed. But I, I'll just say one thing that has become really clear as we've really leaned into conversations with our, our folks, right. Cause I, I can't kind of speak outside definitively on, even trends across an entire community like Durham, right. right? Because we've got 50 organizations that we've been serving and try to serve them as faithfully as possible. Um, most of them kind of grassroots organizations that are very dialed in to what's happening, you know, um, kind of in the margins uh, in our society that really COVID has not created, but COVID has revealed kind right. of the, the, a lot of the discrepancies um, and the divisions, you know, COVID, you know, I heard it said early on in the pandemic that, you know, COVID is, you heard all these things, right? Like COVID is, is, is a equal opportunity offender, mm -hmm. right? Like it doesn't care who you are. And that is true. A virus doesn't care who you are, but a virus that permeates unjust systems mm. will, will only perpetuate that injustice. Right. And so, yeah, the virus isn't racist, but if you have a racist system, <laughs> right. then, 
it's going to, it's going to really make that worse. And that, you know, there's a lot of different layers to injustice, racism being one of the, um, the big ones, not the only one, but, um, I think one of the trends and lessons that we've learned is that I think our, the leaders that we serve, we have seen them kind of double down on and leaning into the people that were already in their corner, Mm. um, to weather this storm. And I think the trust that our network has had built pre-pandemic really has been carrying us through these relationships. And I think that's true of just anybody, I think listening in, you kind of realize, oh, you know, it's really hard to meet new people. It's really hard to build new bridges right now. Um, And I think that as our networks have kind of shrunk down to, hey, who, who can I really lock arms with, you know, that has been kind of a short list of, of people. Um, and I think that's okay. Um, and I think in many ways, that's just kind of been our network leaning into relationships that they had already established pre-pandemic to kind of build, to, to be a bridge to get them across the, the, to the other side uh, when this thing starts to, to get a little better. And so um, I do know that our organizations are being stretched thinner than ever, right. you know, um, they're being, I, I said this earlier, they're being asked to do so much more and with so much less. And I really think the mental health of the people who serve, um, our community is really being, um, is taking a toll. Uh, and I, and I think that that's not, it's not sustainable. Right. And I think that means, you know, when I, we, we come alongside nonprofit leaders, faith leaders, um, social entrepreneurs, you know, by default, they're, they're very, um, they're motivated to serve and they get up in the morning to, uh, as very unselfish people who are putting others needs above their own. Um, but we also know that we have to, you know, find a way for these folks to, to care for themselves. Right. Um, if they're, you know, that oxygen mask analogy of on the airplane, when they tell you to, the first thing you do is, is to put it up, that oxygen over your own face before you put it on someone next to you, you know, it could be a loved one, could be a child, could be your child. Right. Um, and that seems, that seems at first to someone who kind of would wake up every day running a nonprofit. Oh, that, that feels selfish. But I think that we're, we're realizing that we've got to prioritize these folks not burning out. Um, and I think they also realize that that's a privilege, you know, that a lot of folks, you know, self-care is a buzzword that get, goes around a lot. But if you're if you're in survival mode and the water line is like up to your eyeballs, right? Then no, you're not gonna you're not you're not gonna feel like you have the capacity to hop on a Zoom call to do a yoga session at lunch. Right. You know, like that's just not. Sorry, I, I I'm trying to keep a roof over the head of my organization um, and pay my team, provide for my clients, um, and so I think there is definitely this level of luxury and privilege to self-care. So how do we, how do we solve for that? You know, I, I don't have easy answers, but I do think that's a question that we're trying to ask so that we can come alongside our, uh, our network and position them to be healthy and sustainable in the long term. Speaking of things that, that you may have, have been realizing or learning, what, what other things have you just overall, have you been learning and what do you hope sticks around when the pandemic is over? Yeah, uh, man, 
I could so, so, <laughs> many, so many things, right? Because I, I do think that um, desperation breeds innovation. And so that's one of the things that I've seen. Um, and when people are, are backed into a corner, sometimes the best ideas come from that type of situation. And, and uh, I think that one thing that I'm learning, at least in my own role, um, as I kind of, I think I'm, I'm kind of a bridge. I see myself as, you know, we're, we're coming alongside uh, organizations that really, um, I, I see myself as an advocate for them, you know, right. to the community and kind of trying to help translate uh, and, and be a bridge between community members that want to help, helping them get plugged in to some amazing organizations and help them understand uh, what type of effort actually is helpful. So, you know, for me per on a personal level, I've just under I've really leaned into this idea that um, in my role, I really need to, I need to spend time uh, on the ground, uh, really connecting to who I'm serving. Uh, but I also need to pull back and spend some time, kind of this juxtaposition of working in your organization and working on it. Mm -hmm. And I think that those are two things that, you know, when you're working in it in desperation mode, it can feel really hard to pull back and work on it. Right. Because that does, that feels like a luxury that, but I really think it's something, even if it's a small amount of time every day or every week or every month, trying to fight to do that. And I think, uh, you know, an analogy that comes to mind is like this idea of, being on the dance floor mm -hmm. versus being on the balcony, right? And I think those different perspectives are both vitally important as you wade into this work. You, you've got to be able to have the perspective from the ground, the ground level. You know, for, if you're a sports person, you know, being on the field versus being kind of up in the booth, right? Uh, like you know, football coaches often are, and they're those those two folks are talking to each other, right? And they're communicating things because they have different perspectives that are valuable to each other. They're, each of them are seeing something the other person can't see because of their vantage point. And so one of the things I'm realizing is there's so much uh, value in people who have different perspectives coming together with the objective to learn from each other. Mm. But that really only works with a deep sense of humility because yeah, you can come together and you can argue your point. I mean, Twitter exists and it and you can find different perspective left and right. right. Nobody changes people's minds on Twitter though, because people don't show up to Twitter to to with an openness to have their minds changed. They end up just kind of getting doubled down on what they already already thought. And so I think I think what I'm learning is that we all really could use to use a little bit more of a dose of humility in how we approach, especially justice work. Mm. Um I think that when you think you have nothing to learn and you've got all the answers um, and you, uh, I, th I think that, that that's deeply problematic. Um, and I think the kind of leader that needs to, is, is emerging for can, to carry us through to the next chapter post COVID is gonna be a deeply humble leader that recognizes their own blind spots and then works to address those because they're a constant learner. And that sounds okay. And people might be nodding along. Like, oh yes. yeah, of course I'm a constant learner, but then, okay, like, let's talk about how you engage with social media. And like, do you actually ever surround yourself with someone who thinks differently and challenges your mm -hmm. belief on something? Or have you created silos for yourself where you only surround people yourself with people that think exactly like you? And I think if we're all honest, we all naturally build 
these echo chambers for ourselves because it just feels better to be told that you're doing it right than to be challenged. But you really don't grow Mm -hmm. as much in an echo chamber as you do when you intentionally surround yourself with people that are going to push to help you find your own blind spots. Right now, I'm thinking about what you're saying about humility and thinking about proximity, um, which you have mentioned a lot in our conversation, and it seems to be a really big value um, for Reese City. Are those two things connected? Can we be or get gain more humility by being more proximate to the people that are hurting to the issues? I think it depends on who you are, right? So I think, yes, if you are in a position of privilege and privilege looks a lot of different, a lot of different ways, right? right. I mean, I think a lot of people hear privilege, they think white privilege right off the bat. And that, that 100%, you know, is something that is, is very real. You know, for me as a white man, I need to humbly lean into recognizing and naming my privileges, but not stopping there. I need right. to name them and then work to leverage that, the, the power and the access that comes with those and help to redirect those, you know, so that it's not just benefiting myself. You know, I can't shed my whiteness, right. right? Uh, but I can help to create opportunities for others that I have been given through no real skill of my own. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and use it to not just advance myself, but to, to, to help advance others. And that, but that has to be a conscious choice. And so for me, I think when you're coming from a, if you have any type of privilege and you kind of audit your own journey and you recognize that, you know, whether you're white or, you know, other people can have different levels of privilege as well. Um, you know, there could be privilege around class, right. Uh, right. And your socioeconomic status, um, you know, so many different layers to it. I think that, yeah, if you're coming from a position of privilege, a hundred percent, it requires humility to recognize that you need to get proximate when really you don't have to that's something that you could opt into or that's what privilege is right the privilege to opt out whenever you want um in many cases so like as a white guy in the last year i can opt out of any conversations around racial justice that make me uncomfortable because you know i have the ability to navigate my life without ever having to intersect with those type of uncomfortable conversations. Mm-hmm. It takes humility to say, no, but I need, I, even though society may be set up in a way where I could choose a path where I never have to get uncomfortable and I never have to get proximate. Right. It takes a deep sense of humility to say, I'm not going to be um, everything I was made to be unless I get proximate because I need people who are less privilege that society maybe doesn't value as much uh, as myself, but I know that they have the same amount of value that I have. And I need to learn from them and position myself as a learner. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think there's different levels of proximity. So someone it's definitely a good first step to recognize you need to get proximate. It's a, I think though, how do you show up and show up in that proximity? Are you showing up thinking you're there to save the day and you only have answers and solutions or are you showing up to learn and to listen and i think that requires a deeper sense of humility
you've been in a big change um, the past several months. And so are there any experiences from your life um, that has kind of helped guide you as you have made a pivot or a shift or begin to kind of change your mindset around certain things? The only thing that is constant about life is how, how is change, right? And I think that, you know, this is, while this is unprecedented in my lifetime, um, there's definitely been times where I have been um, just personally in the midst of, of having to experience a great amount of change. But when I look back on those changes has given me a really, um, a new perspective um, that has kind of changed the the entire trajectory of my life. Um, so I think for me personally, um, I think one of those changes was, I, I think that 100% you're right that in, in a pandemic, we all get a little self-reflective, right. but I really think that shouldn't stop. I mean, I think, I think we always need to be going back to this idea of on the ground versus the, the balcony, right. Um, or on the playing field. And I think that for me, one of the things that kind of gave me a, a huge amount of perspective, well, two things is when I changed, I actually, my physical location changed, right? So growing up in a kind of suburban, affluent white neighborhood, yeah. um, you know, I was kind of just kind of conditioned to see the world a certain way. And I carried kind of that blindness to some of the systemic realities that of injustice that surrounded me all through college, but it wasn't until I kind of had a drastic change of location that led me to kind of see the world in a new way. And that happened in kind of in a layers, you know, one was spending time literally outside of our country. Yeah. Right. Um, and I was, I was working a job overseas and it just gave me a whole new perspective on America and how America worked from a distance, right. Like zooming mm-hmm. out to, to kind of observe it from the balcony, right. Instead of right. being on the, on the ground, it just gave me a whole different perspective. And for me, that kind of shattered this illusion of kind of the American dream and this, this lie that I think I've been conditioned to believe that um, uh, money makes you happy and kind of solves all your problems. Yeah. And I don't want to, I don't want to downplay the fact that like money is vital to some basic things in life. Right. right? And that if you don't have that, don't worry, you know, like I, I wouldn't preach that truth to a homeless person. Like, right. Oh yeah, no, you're fine. You just kind of need to have a different perspective. No, like there, there's a hierarchy of needs that I think every human, we need, we need to fight to, to make sure that's true. But I also think in the economic empowerment conversation, the flip side of that coin is that, and what taught me being overseas, especially in a co- country that had much less wealth than America, is that money is not happiness mm. by itself. Right. And, and if you've, if you've and, and, and I know that because some of it, it took me going to another country and meeting people who were m- much poorer than anyone I had ever known, mm-hmm. but finding that they had much more joy than anyone I had ever known in America. So like, that'll mess with your worldview real quick, right? Like, okay, if, if the American dream is real and more money, more things buys happiness, right. why is everyone I know that gets more is actually end up being pretty miserable, right? In some situations, but people who have a lot less actually have a joy about them. Well, clearly it can't just, just be money and it can't just be about economic empowerment. And I think that's for me, deeply rooted in, in, in faith, right? And knowing right. that this, this life is about so much more than, it's not, it's not less than economic empowerment, but it's also, I think it's also more than that. I want to um, talk about justice 
Um, I know that's one of ReCity's focuses. And you launched a podcast, the Just Podcast, um, in March of 2020. And I was wondering, um, what is what it, what was the story behind it? Uh, what things have you learned? Was was that was the podcast a pivot? Um, but then also, what does justice look like um, when you think about justice? What does that look like for you at this time? Mm. Yeah, I'll um, I'll start. I'll work backwards. I'll start with your second question. Cool. Like, what what does justice look like? It looks like a lot of things, right? And I think that um, you know, for us. I think we also have to need to, to have a working definition for how we define justice, because I think it's a word that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so, right. you know, ReCity, um, we, our DNA kind of is birthed out of a local church. Like we had seed money from a local church to start this. And so for us, that, that how we define justice definitely kind of is birthed out of kind of how, how uh, the Christian church defines justice. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that um, you know, people, we, we serve people across the spectrum of faith and non-faith, you know, um, nonprofit business faith. We, we embrace the diversity of our network, but I think the way we have defined justice kind of gets us rooted in kind of the, 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 the Christian teaching around justice, which is both, um, retributive and restorative. Mm. And so there's this duality there of, you know, people understand justice as, you know, the retributive side of it. When you do something wrong, you need to be punished. Right. Wrongdoers need to, that needs to be made right. Um, but then there's this restorative side. Uh, and that is the kind of the uplifting of the marginalized and the oppressed. And really justice is both of those things. Um, mm. And so for me, you know, running ReCity, trying to be true to that value of how do we, what does it look like to do justice in our communities? Well, it's about both of those things. But I think we're more so in the space, uh, you know, we're, the criminal justice system is set up really, you know, at least on paper to do that justly. We know there's a lot of problems with that. Uh, ReCity is really not as positioned to kind of in the criminal justice reform space as it is the restorative side of justice, mm -hmm. you know, to be able to ensure that people who are in the mar being pushed to the margins of our society uh, the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized, the oppressed, they are, they are, we are working so that they can flourish the same way that people who experience uh, access to resources and wealth uh, can flourish. And we, we really believe that should be across the board. And that, that's what it means to build a, a more just community. Can you remind me what your first question was? Sorry, that was, I mean, you, you, you tacked on define justice as uh, part two. So I made me completely forget about what part one was because that, that's definitely a doozy. No worries. No, that's good. And, and I like that definition. And I think, I, I think a lot of people sometimes focus on one or the other more heavily. And so I think it's nice that you went into both, um, both sides of justice and that working definition. Um, but I, but the first question was around the Just Podcast and kind of what was yeah. the story behind it. Um, was that a pivot in and of itself? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that that came to be 100%. It was a pivot, and it really came into being by you know, I had been doing in the justice space for for five years, and when when you had been in this space for that long, you realize you know there's so many different events that happen and so many different things around thought leadership. You know, just ReCity as an organization really named the importance 
of advocacy as one of our buckets, you know, so co-working kind of that shared space component of getting physically proximate was that first, first vertical for us. The second one was how do we, how do we be intentional with that shared space? And so that goes around like the sharing of resources and services, you know, what can organizations do to not just share space, but move into sharing vendors to be able to maximize output, right. And minimize cost. Um, to be able to serve and be the best version of themselves. And then, but the third bucket is advocacy, which is really revolves around having hard conversations of how we even got here as right. a society. And because we're rooted here in Durham, it's telling the story of, of justice in Durham and in communities like Durham, which means having hard conversations about why, why are our communities the way they are and why are certain people marginalized yeah. and vulnerable today. Because if you, you know, with Durham having 20 new people coming a day, moving to the city, if you don't know the story of how we got here, you're going to draw uh, incomplete conclusions right. as to why things are the way they are, you know? And when you look at it all across the board and name that, you know, demographically a disproportionate amount of people of color are poor and suffer from poverty in Durham. If you don't know the history of how things got to be the way they are, you're going to walk away with incomplete conclusions and oftentimes just incorrect conclusions about why those things are current realities. Uh, and so for us, the podcast really was birthed out of this desire to say, we need to have these hard conversations. And I was always so sad when I was at an event that had, was amazing, mm -hmm. but really was kind of like trying to capture lightning in a bottle because you know 20 people were there and the, all the richness of that conversation died with the event right? Um, because it was limited to how many people could physically get into a single place at yeah. a single time with so much happening in our world, right? And so we actually started to pivot toward the podcast pre-pandemic just because we wanted to amplify the thought leadership of our partners, you know, and we thought that there was, we needed to have these hard conversations and we wanted to mic up our partner organizations to put a spotlight on them because they're the ones getting proximate to some of the toughest issues of our day mm -hmm. in our community. And so they, we needed to be this bridge. We wanted to create a bridge between our partners and their thought leadership and the community. And we thought a podcast was really kind of a way to bust out of the four walls of a traditional event and reach more people because we would have this digital archive of, right. of storytelling that could transcend time and place. And I think that has been totally the case in that the fact that, you know, we, we now have a listenership, you know, going into our third season that spans four continents, mm, right? Nice. That's way more people and way more reach than who can make an event in downtown Durham, right. you know, on a specific date. And so really, really glad we did that. And then when the pandemic struck and no one was doing events, period, that digital storytelling really became this pivot that I'm so thankful we kind of had the foresight to, to, make that change because our, we didn't even skip a beat. We had already had those systems in place and we could just double down on them to be able to lean more fully into that medium to tell the stories that needed to be told. Right. Right. When you wake up 10 years from now, look outside your window, what do you hope to see for your community for Durham? Hmm. I hope to see a radically different version of ownership. Mm. To me, 
if you ha- if I had to pinpoint the lesson that I've learned in the last five years about how what what is really at the center of true transformation and justice when it comes you know to to flourishing in our communities for for everybody, um, I think it really hinges on reimagining how we view who gets to own stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I think honestly, this comes from uh, our own lessons in you know, the physical building we occupy as an organization yeah. and seeing what gentrification over the last five years has done to our neighborhood and how it looks dramatically different than how it looked when we first moved in, right? Gentrification sweeping through downtown Durham, sweeping through downtown Raleigh, um, and I think people have, it's really, it, it's a lot easier to name and point out injustice than it is to name how to solve it. Right. Right. And so, yeah, gentrification is bad. Yes. But I actually believe that gentrification, there's a form of gentrification that can be good. The only reason right. gentrification is bad is that it is concentrated to generate wealth and power in a, in a, a, a limited number of hands. Right. Yeah. The only reason gentrification is bad if you're a a, a resident in a uh, poor neighborhood is that is if you don't own your your house, because if you owned your house or you owned your business and property values are shooting through the roof, that's actually great news for you. Right. Gentrification actually becomes a way for you to build wealth. It's only when that is limited or we're disenfranchising people from being a part of that ownership story. That is when injustice is perpetuated. That is when you are prevented from building generational wealth. And that has been the story of our country and our communities for hundreds of years, right? Right. And so when you ask me, you know, what is 10 years from now, what I hope to see, I hope to see us, people who are in positions of, uh, that have access to resources and capital, being able to truly be transformative with making big bets around democratizing ownership in really uh, bold ways that help redistribute that ownership and really invite everyone to be uh, at that table. And I would go further to actually own the table Mm. because I think that's the next, that's where I think we have to go. It's not enough to say, Oh yeah, I want to seat at that table. Right. Okay, well, who's extend, who, who extends the invitations? People who own the table. And I think I, I ultimately want everybody in our communities to be able to be in the position to actually not just be invited to the table, to be able to own the table and be the person that gets to extend the invitation. And so thinking back to the present time, what gives you hope? What has been giving you hope? Ooh, man, you start talking hope, man. You, you, you start activating my, my church upbringing there right there. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to start channeling my, my inner preacher. I'll try not to, uh, try not to as best I can, right? But, you know, I mean, what, if, I'm, if I'm answering for myself, you know, just as a, as a person, you know, this work of justice is, yeah, again, deeply rooted back into my faith, which, you know, people who follow the legacy of the civil rights movement know that, man, that thing was incubated in, in the local church, right? right? I mean, Martin Luther King, you may want, if you're, if, you're, if you're not a person of faith, you may want to separate King's faith from his justice work, but he, he did not do that. Mm. <laughs> you were, you were kind of, you're editing out the parts you don't like of his story. Right. Um, 
And if you're doing that, you're, it's just an incomplete story. And so for me, I, I really think when I hear King's words echo today about the beloved community, um, to me, what gives me hope, I have to lean into my faith to believe in re that redemption is possible. Mm. Uh, redemption is possible for our communities. Redemption is possible for in all of us. Uh, and I really believe that King carried with him a deep sense of not never canceling anybody, but really believing any, e even his worst enemy, there was, there was, redemption was possible for that person. You know, even the most ardent racist, right? right. Um, and I really believe that for me, that, that hope that redemption is possible is, is, is what carries me through. And, you know, knowing, I think that's kind of where I get a vision, a personal just vision of what, what the Christian Bible teaches about uh, how communities and how humans are meant and created to operate. And to know that if, there, if, we, if we have a creator that is behind all this, then we're created with purpose and that there is this shared sense of humanity that we all, um, you know, all have, all need to be invited into that story. And it really is, it is a shared story. Uh, and if we really kind of tap into that shared purpose, then we will then be able to pursue a shared flourishing for our communities. And that, you know, I don't know if that is, uh, I don't know if I'm going to see that in my lifetime. And I'm not right. even sure that it is uh, even possible. It might be a mission that is destined to fail, but I really believe that uh, ultimately redemption will happen. And that, that kind of, my faith is what undergirds that hope. Yeah. Mm. Well, final question for you. Um, what message or words would you share with someone going through a major pivot and they may be looking for some advice or just something mm. to help them? What would you tell mm. them? Yeah, man. I, uh, well, first I think, uh, really name and spend time reflecting on your purpose. Um, why do you believe you're on this earth, right? Why do you exist? What, what are, and do, do kind of this audit of your passions, your skills, um, you know, in the midst of crazy circumstances, the one thing that you have agency in is kind of knowing thyself, right? Right. And, and knowing how you care, you can't control your circumstance, but you can control how you carry yourself in those circumstances. Um, you know, we all don't have the same level of agency in our lives, but all of us have some, some degree of agency and really leaning into whatever level of agency you do have um, to know and, and really rediscover your purpose and maybe how that purpose has changed over time. And so, you know, one thing I've done with our, leader, our leadership team here at ReCity is walking through how to hone a personal, personal mission statement for everyone on our team. Um, that really is, should, yeah, you can, you can live out that through your organization, but it's not meant to be limited to your vocation, right? This is something right. that, you know, you, you, you get fired tomorrow or your organization goes under tomorrow, you can still be true to that purpose, right? Like really doing that self-audit to understand what, why are you on this earth um, and really trying to line up your decision-making to try to position yourself to, to live out that purpose for as long as you have. Um, and then I heard, I heard an example of this recently of um, really kind of doing assessment, not just internally, but uh, externally of, and if you feel like you're in the water right now, yeah. um, kind of doing an audit of like, who's in the water with you 
naming those people, naming who's further ahead on the journey, you know, of where you want to go. And then also who's, who's behind you, like on land. Right. And I think we would be really good exercise for all of us in, in, in times of pivoting to like name who's in your corner and, you know, people on land, they may, they may not be anywhere closer. They may just be all talk. Right. But like right. people in the water are like, no, they're swimming. They, they've, they've taken the leap with you. Um, and a spot and surrounding yourself also with people who are further down the journey that you can learn from. And I think just really realizing that we're at our core being meant to be deeply, we're wired and created for community. Mm-hmm. And so this is not meant to be a solo journey, right? Uh, even though you may have a unique purpose, I don't believe you were meant to live that unique purpose out in isolation. Mm-hmm. And so let's do an audit of, of what, why you feel like what gifts and abilities and passions you have to how to, and what to hone a purpose statement, but then also naming just your community around you, who's in the water with you, who's further down the, on the journey that you aspire to be on and who's behind you on the land and making sure you just kind of let those folks speak into your life. I think at varying degrees, depending on their role. How can people learn more about the Reef City Network or listen to the podcast? People can hop online, our website, recitynetwork.org. You can find out more about ReCity. Uh, we have a podcast page on the website, but if you, if you want to dive straight to the podcast, you can also just you know find the Just Podcast, J-U-S-T, uh, really wherever you subscribe to podcasts. To learn more about ReCity, you can shoot me an email at rob at recitynetwork.org. Um, or if you're just wanting to continue this conversation around what does it look like to get proximate um, to do justice right where you are. I mean, that's really what ReCity is all about. And so anyone that wants to continue that conversation offline, I'd be more than welcome to do that. Rob Shields is the executive director of the ReCity Network, Durham Social Impact Hub, leveraging the power of proximity and collaboration of their partners to rewrite the story of Durham. You've been listening to Pivots, a podcast on navigating transitions, negotiating change, and reimagining our world. Pivots is a project of the A.J. Fletcher Foundation produced and hosted by me, Kenneth Brown Jr. Our music is composed by Blue Dot Sessions. You can hear this episode and more anytime, wherever you listen to podcasts, or go to our show page at www.pivotsajf.simplecast.com. See you next time.